0: We're finishing up the series on the nine fruit of the Spirit, which, as you know, is the character of God being formed in us as we serve the Lord, and He transforms us from who we used to be with our fallen nature into the resurrected nature. Another way of saying that is the nature that is alive that we have in Christ Jesus, and so. We've talked about the nine fruit of the Spirit, or eight of them at least. These are found in Galatians chapter number 5, verse 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, the Greek word there is faith, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. Now let me explain what that phrase means, okay? You say, what does that mean against such there is no law? Every time you go to claim a promise from God or to ask God to bless you, do you know there's an accuser of the brethren that says, hey, 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 hey uh uh-uh, God, you can't bless that man. You can't bless that woman. They have violated your law. Now, right up front, I want to tell you, there's nobody perfect. The only one who was ever perfect is Jesus Christ. So I know the way the enemy works. He'll say, "Uh, okay, well, you know, I know me better than the pastor does. And I'm going to tell you, (laughs) I got a little imperfection here or there. And if the enemy is accusing every time I pray, that's going to pretty much knock me off the table right there because he does have legitimate reason Accuse me because I'm not perfect. I want you to know the Bible says our lives are hid with God in Christ. When you get saved, your old nature is buried under the blood, and that's where grace takes over. You're not perfect, but grace adds to you whatever is missing in your life, and we begin to see the transformation within us as we begin to experience the fruit of the Spirit developing in our hearts, which is really, as I've pointed out, the character of God growing within us. Now, our theme this year has been living the extraordinarily blessed life. And we read, it's been a while since I've read it, so I'm going to go there. Psalms 1, verse 1 through 4. Blessed is the man who walks not in the courts of the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And most of us think laws are harsh, right? I want you to understand the difference between God's laws and man's laws is that the laws that the Bible is referring to here are the laws of success, the laws of contentment and joy and peace, that when you live in alignment with God's word for your life, that it creates in your life all of the things you're really looking for you begin to live the extraordinarily blessed life as we see. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, and, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. See that picture of a tree with its roots going into the water? It's not out there in the desert needing a rain to survive. And this tree brings forth its fruit and its season, its leaf will not wither, and whatever he does. I love that. What? ever he does shall prosper because you're walking in divine favor and you've got an extraordinary blessing that has been spoken over your life because you're a child of God and then to point out that there are some people who do not reach that level of blessing it said the ungodly are not so but are like the chafe which the wind drives away Psalms 92 goes on to further declare that when we're planted in the house of the Lord we flourish and and we will bear fruit in old age and be fresh and flourishing, which means that contrary to the normal life cycle where most people taper off as they near the end of their life, I need somebody in this building to say, as I get older, say it with me, as I get older, my life is gonna be more blessed than it is right now. (laughs) That's right. I'm not tapering down. The Bible is really a handbook about how to live life successfully. Now, because of these verses, we're teaching how to live the extraordinarily blessed life. And when you develop the character of God in your heart, you can't help but be blessed. Your life is blessed. And so, we're coming to the very last of the fruit of the Spirit. I've taught, I spent four weeks on just faith. And then Andrew taught gentleness, so I'm skipping over that one because it was already covered. And I want to talk about self control. If you read from the King James Version of the Bible, it says temperance, but against such there's no law. If you have these things operating in your heart, when you go to approach God and ask for his favor and blessing, and God goes to bless you, the enemy's saying, hey, 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 can't do that. He's the accuser of the brethren. There's no law he can appeal to. And God looks at him and says, yeah, you want something? Uh, Yeah, you can't bless him. Well, why? Well, uh, cause, I said so. Well, who are you? And God totally ignores him. You see, God's nature is to bless. Unfortunately, there are many people, if they're not living their lives in alignment with the word of God, the enemy says, hey, hey, hey. And God says, yes. Yes. And the enemy, just like a prosecutor in a court of law, says, You can't do this because this, 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 and this exists in their life. And God, who wants to bless you, says, Gee, I really wanted to, but I can't because they have given up and forfeited the legal right to be blessed. What Paul is literally saying when you have the fruit of the Spirit in your life, you have a legal right. walk in divine favor. Somebody just lift your hand and say, I have a legal right to be blessed. Amen. And like I said, that's even though we're imperfect. So I'm teaching today from the subject flourishing because God is teaching me self-control. Father, I pray that you will speak to us this morning. Let your word be instructive and impacting and let it change our lives as we address this most important of subjects in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. These nine characteristics, the fruit of the Spirit, that I'm saying are really the character of God, concludes, as I pointed out in the King James, by one that is identified as temperance. That's not really the best translation. Any longer for that word. Words change meaning over time. They do. Words in one century that mean one thing several centuries later can mean exactly the opposite. And just briefly, for those of you that are interested in things like this, I'll give you an example. The Bible talks about In Thessalonians, where Paul said, only he who now let, speaking of the Holy Spirit, will let until he is taken out of the way. Look that up in the Greek. The word let in our society means to permit or to allow. You look at the Greek word, and strangely, the word means hinder. The diametrically opposite meaning that the word holds today. And the day King James ordered and authorized that version to be Translated, it meant hinder. You could read that and not even realize that the meaning has changed. In similar fashion, the word temperance is not necessarily the best word to use here, and that's why most translations now call it self-control. That is because temperance, oh, 100 years ago or longer, was a movement. The temperance movement was a movement organized because our nation was being destroyed by the abuse of alcohol. So many families had been ruined by alcohol that, that people got together and started organizing the temperance movement to try and restrict the sale of, of alcohol. And, and as a result of that, there were the blue laws. And in my state of Louisiana, where I came from, you couldn't sell alcohol on, on Sundays. I don't even know what it's like over there now or what the law is here now. But they, they have to close bars at certain times and should because we've had many people in this congregation that have been suffered uh that have suffered and some of them even permanently injured and have lost loved ones as a result of a driver under the influence of alcohol and so the temperance is not necessarily the best word because it lends itself to the idea that what the bible here is saying is is that temperance or self control is only restricted to one area and that's the use of alcohol. In the Greek, the word literally means self-control and it comes from a root word in the Greek that, that means to have power over something. In this case, it's power over self, self-control. Another word that you could use to identify here would be that uh, you're not impulsive. And yet another word that expresses this is the word moderation. You are not impulsive and prone to give in and just go crazy over something, that you're deliberate in what you do rather than being controlled by this thing that has gotten a hold of some others. It's the ability to not go to extremes. And the word literally hints at one reason that people sometimes don't have self-control. But we'll get to all of that a little bit later. And certainly these words do... These words, I'm talking about temperate, describe the character of God. Moderation. And when we talk about having self-control, you might not ever think of God that way. But God has incredible self-control. Think about it for a minute. Incredible self-control. He is not impulsive. If he were, I don't know about you, but I'm quite convinced I wouldn't even be around right now. Amen. And some of you probably would have been taken out of right there along with me if not sooner. Amen. He is incredibly long suffering. The Bible said he's slow to anger and rich in mercy. Is there anybody in this building that glad that's glad God is slow to anger and rich in mercy? Amen. How many of you have Realized in the course of your life that if you don't learn to have self-control, you will never become everything that God intended for us to become. You can't. You actually place over your own life a glass ceiling that you cannot go beyond, even though it was God's intention to bring you much further than that. You impose limitations on yourself if you do not exhibit self-control, or self-mastery. We limit our own success and happiness by not mastering our thoughts, our emotions, our desires, and our actions. And there's some things you just will not see. Speaking of not seeing things, Bob left work one Friday morning, a Friday afternoon, It was payday, so instead of going home from work, he stayed out the entire weekend partying with his friends and spent the whole paycheck. When he finally appeared at home on Sunday night, he was confronted by his angry wife who harangued him for nearly two hours with a tirade befitting his actions. And finally, his wife quieted down for just a moment and looked at him and said how would you like it if you didn't see me for two or three days and he popped off and said that would be fine with me and Monday came and went and he didn't see her Tuesday came and went and he didn't see her Wednesday came and went with the same results, but on Thursday evening, the swelling started to go down just enough in one eye that he could see her out of the corner of his eye. Amen. If you want to see, you need to learn to be moderate and careful in some of your thoughts and some of the things you say. Now, I love the Bible because it not only speaks of the incredible achievements of great men and women of God, but it is also remarkably candid in discussing their failures. That is intriguing to me because many of the books are autobiographical. uh, For example, Jonah. He writes this, and you read about Jonah's failure. He's running to Nineveh instead of going, uh, running to Tarshish. Rather than going to Nineveh, he takes a ship. And instead of obeying God, and, goes, and, and he doesn't go to Nineveh like God instructed him. And then when he finally does go, you know, God's got a way of letting you loop all the way around. If it takes years, and you end up right where you were supposed to be. Amen. And that's exactly what happened with Jonah. He ended up where he was supposed to be. And then he got mad because God didn't destroy the city like he had said he was going to because Nineveh repented. And so Jonah got mad about that and threw a little temper tantrum, a little hissy fit. And, And he tells all of this on himself. And that to me is amazing because trust me, if I were writing a book about me, I'd be telling you all the good stuff, not the bad stuff. But when it comes to the Word of God, He not only tells you of the dizzying heights of accomplishment and achievement and fame that such people as Samson, Ruth, Naomi, David, Solomon, Esther, and others were able to attain to, and we not only witnessed the awesome things that God did through them, we're also allowed to see the incredible mistakes they made and the pain they suffered and the tragedy it caused to those they loved. More often than not, the problems that you see that occurred in the lives of the people of the Bible were problems they experienced and the pain that they brought upon themselves and caused to those they loved. More often than not, it can be traced back to one thing, a lack of self-control a lack of self-mastery. And the reason the Bible tells you about the great heights that they went to and their successes and then juxtapositions this alongside the dismal depths of their failure and the pain is so that you can make a decision. Which one of these do you want to pursue in your life? Certainly the story of King David and his son Amnon is but one example of how The failure to learn self-control led to personal catastrophe and ruin within a man's life and within the lives of the members of his family as well. David was a very busy parent who, I believe, overcompensated for the very little time he had with his children by being too indulgent with them. Sound familiar? Does this strike a little bit too close to home for some of us? What we should take note of is is that David had been busy ever since he was a kid. whether it's taking care of his daddy's sheep or after he's anointed by by Samuel and after he kills the giant, he flees from Saul and, and he's in the wilderness and 400 men that are deadbeats and ruffians and scallywags and crooks and thieves and lawbreakers, they come to him and David sets about reparenting these broken people and making them into the mighty men that we read about that they became. David devoted himself, just like he once had, to shepherding sheep, to shepherding people. When he became the king in Israel, he did the very same thing. He was very devoted and dedicated to the affairs of the people of God. Everything he was doing was a noble task. It was a high calling it was an important pursuit, and even leading the people of God, as it were, governing a nation that would be responsible for giving us the Messiah that would come someday. He was pursuing after the heart of God at the same time, for the scripture states that he was a man after the heart of God. That doesn't mean what we often think it means that he was like God. Far from it, David was not like God in many ways. He had dismal failures in his life, but what it meant was is that David was always seeking, God, put your heart in me. Amen. I want to be close to you. David was devoted to God. Amen. David was the guy, you will remember, who brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem and reconstructed, re, re raised, as it were, re-erected, the tabernacle, and this time in total opposition to what Moses' law prescribed must be done, David did not put the veil around the Ark of the Covenant. David had prayed a prayer for years. One thing have I desired of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and behold his beauty and inquire in his temple. And what's amazing about that prayer is, at that time... You were restricted from entering into the presence of God. There were three dimensions of the tabernacle. There was the outer court, the inner court, and then the inner sanctum, or the most holy place where the ark was at, and it was separated from the rest, each of these, by a curtain. In the latter case, that curtain was called the veil. And the only one who got to enter into those last two compartments were priests. And the only one who got to enter into the last one, the most holy place where the ark was at, was the high priest. And then only once a year. And David has the the unmitigated audacity to pray, I want to see your beauty, referring to the ark of the covenant. And I want to inquire of you. And and you could quickly say, wait a minute, David, you're of the tribe of Judah. You're not of the tribe of Levi. You have no right to approach the, the altar. And he didn't. But David's hunger overrode all of that. And when David brought the ark back to Jerusalem, instead of erecting the veil around the ark of the covenant, David positioned 288 worshipers that in shifts worshiped 24 uh, uh, hours a day, seven days a week, and he replaced the veil with worshipers knowing that what really gets close to God is worship, amen, amen. And that God really wanted to be in contact with his people. And what's amazing is David literally got to see the Ark of the Covenant and inquire of God. You can't tell me David didn't have good motives and wasn't doing a good work and and wasn't devoted to the right things. But as a parent, I have to tell you that when you read the sad and distressing saga Of his life and his family he was a dismal failure as a dad because like a lot of us doing good things we get so busy i mean i'm not saying this to make you feel busy and uh, rather to make you feel frustrated for being busy Uh, husbands and wives both have to work some of you work in two jobs And you're doing that because we live in challenging times. And and you know what David did? David got into the practice of being overly indulgent because he was motivated by guilt for the failure that he had become as a dad. And that's a bad place to be because a lot of us, if we're not careful, can get in the same place and let things go in our family that are detrimental to the future success of our children. Amen. David was faithful in his attendance to the house of God and worship, devoted to studying the Word of God. But as I said, the result of his busyness was that his children had to learn their core beliefs and values, not from their father, but from their friends. And they also came to depend upon the advice of their friends rather than to seek the wisdom of their parents. And I want to say this, that through the years that that I've lived on this planet and I've worked with lots of families, the one thing you better be careful about is who your kids hang around with. Oh, you hear what I'm saying? You better be careful. You say, "I can't I can't just do that. They're going to think I'm harsh." That's why I don't just make my kids go to church. You make them go to school on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. I don't want to turn them against church and I'll wait till they get older and decide. Why don't you do that with education? I'll tell you why cuz they'll come pick you up and put you in jail if you don't send your kids to school. That's child abuse. And I want to tell you, a worse form of child abuse is to not educate your child in the things of God. When I was a kid, and I've often said life is unfair, when you're young and you have the opportunity to go to school and somebody else is paying for it, you don't want to go. When you get older and realize how important it is, you've got to pay for it yourself. Amen. I told my dad before he died, you're lucky. <laughs> I didn't realize how important education was. I ended up paying for my own. I said, you owe me something, dad. You know that, don't you? You got off light with me, amen. But listen to what I'm trying to tell you. Your kids can kick and scream. They don't wanna to go to school and you tell them get up and get out that door and get on that school bus anyway. Cause you're gonna need this someday. I got news for you. In the course of living this life, you're going to need this someday, and I promise you, you'll need it more than education. Amen. Life is set up in a fallen world where you're going to need God, and I don't care who you are, you're going to need him. You're going to need him. You're going to need him. Hear what I'm talking about? And it's just like education. You might not appreciate it right now, but later when you get out in the workforce, you're going to be really glad that you took the time to go to school or get a degree or something like that in similar fashion. Your children might not value their Christian education, but there will come a time when they run into the inevitable circumstances of life that you live in a fallen world where there is an enemy who's trying to create havoc in your life, and you're going to need the input of the Word of God. That's why the Bible said, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. When he's young, he might do a lot of stupid stuff, but he gets a little older and encounters a few situations as an adult. He's going to say, wait a minute. I need what they taught me back there at the house of God. And, I need what mom and daddy were trying to tell me. When my grandmother was raising me, I absolutely didn't see rhyme, reason, or sense in half of what she was trying to say. I got older and I looked back and some of those friends I was running with, I looked at them, they turned out to be as dumb as I was. Amen. I looked to them for answers. They didn't know what to do. They were in the same mess I was in. You taking, or let me ask you, you taking financial advice from Uncle Joe who's broke? I wouldn't take my friend's advice either. I got to a certain point in life. I looked at him and said, I'm not gonna do that. It didn't work for you. Did it work for you? No. Uh-uh. Well, why are you pushing that same advice off on me? And I remembered some of the stuff I had been taught as a child. And I tried it and it worked because this book always works. I wanna tell you, the word works. <laughs> Somebody say Amen. David failed to teach his children the principles that he was trying to live in his own life. And he did so out of guilt. The result was that, as I said, his children learned from their friends. And David finally seemed to become a better parent when Solomon was born. But clearly, there were problems with the other kids. Ammon fell into lust with his sister Tamar, who repulsed his advances Can you imagine anything so shocking as he wants to sleep with his own sister? And she told him a word he must not have heard too much around their house. She said no. And he didn't know how to handle it. I wanna tell you why you need to say no to your kids once in a while. Because if you don't, they're gonna grow up and somebody else is gonna sure tell them no. A boss is gonna tell them no, a policeman's gonna tell them no. You hear what I'm saying? Somebody's going to tell him no. Amen. At the advice of a friend, Amnon went, pretended to be sick, and when Tamar came to give him some soup, when he was ill, you know what he did? He forced himself upon her and literally raped his own sister. The horror of that. And you know, even worse, David never did anything about it and pretended it had never happened and glossed over it. Did it make it go away? No. Just like every other problem, you ignore it, it doesn't go away. Instead, what happened is another son, Absalom, killed that brother of his for what he had done. And further, listen to this, Absalom even led a coup d'etat against his own father, David, tried to steal the kingdom from him later. Because he lost respect for his dad. Let me tell you what's better than your kids liking you. They need to respect you. Amen. You think about this. Now, am I talking about being so harsh that kids can't identify with you? No, no, please don't don't walk out of here. I'm the most indulgent grandpa you've ever seen in your life. Amen. I love my kids, but I tell them no whenever I think it's wrong. And if they don't like it, I've learned they'll get over it. Amen. Absalom not only led rebellion against his dad, David, he even sexually assaulted the wives of his father, David, publicly in the eyes of the nation of Israel. And then there was Adonijah, another brother, who tried to take over the throne and announced himself to be king when David had become well-advanced in years and was about to retire from office. Clearly... He had problems with the discipline of his children. And what is really sad is that when you look at the life of David, you will find it probably steered from two, and, and uh, rather originated with two things, stemmed from two things, his busyness in good things. And then ultimately, he became so busy that even his own relationship with God began to suffer, and he found out the hard way That if you neglect and put as a lower priority your relationship with God, it always catches up with you. David ended up sleeping with Bathsheba and then conspired to have her husband, who was his friend, killed when he found out Bathsheba was pregnant. And set in motion a chain of events opened up a door into that family of generational curses that followed them from generation to generation because he made some missteps in his life because he did not practice self-control. One thing that I want to say fundamentally and right up front is self-control obviously means saying no to some things you shouldn't get involved in. But I want to tell you that your flesh is going to want to say yes. And we live in a time when people believe, you're raining on my parade if you tell me I can't do something. That's the attitude of the world we live in right now. Amen. And you have to learn to say no to your flesh. Because your flesh will get you in trouble. But it will be your spiritual man that will suffer and your family. You heard about Brother Brown, who was the most well-known Christian in that rural community, and always praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Serving God. How are you today? God is good. And one night he was arrested for stealing chickens. Now you have to be from the country like I am to appreciate this. Some of y'all think chickens comes and are wrapped up with something that says poultry form on it. Or he stole some chickens and they hauled him before the judge, and the judge looked and read the, 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 what was on the docket, looked back, looked, and said, Brother Brown, I thought you were a Christian. How is it you were arrested, caught in the, the act, red-handed, of stealing these chickens? And Brother Brown said, well, it's like this, Your Honor. All the time my body was stealing those chickens, my spirit was praising the Lord. And the judge said, give his body 30 days and let his spirit go free. Uh, I want you to know your spirit suffers from the decisions your flesh makes. But not only should you say no to some things, there's some things you need to say yes to. And just like when you say no, your flesh doesn't want to, you need to say yes to some things, and guess what? Your flesh will not want to say yes to those either. The flesh is always going to choose the opposite position that your spirit man is going to be asked by God to, to, to decide for. Your, your flesh is always going to resist you. It's going to be your enemy. For example, your God's going to ask you to do some things in the course of your life And your flesh is going to say, no, uh uh-uh, can't do that. Like some folk, it's amazing to me that some Christians think they can be strong and move mountains and and pray and open heaven and and they go to church. I'm not, I'm really meddling this morning, aren't I? And they go to church about once a month or once, twice a month like that. And the rest of the time, you know, the flesh says, you're tired. You had a hard week. Try that on Monday morning. Call in, boss, I'm not coming in. I had a hard weekend. See how how well that does with you, amen, and your career, amen. You have to say no to things that are going to hurt your marriage and destroy trust and things that will make you lose self-respect or the respect of others. But you should also say yes to the things that are right, even when the flesh doesn't want to. I've learned this. I mean, I'm sure all of you, every time you go on vacation, first thing you do when it's Sunday and you're in another city Is you get on the internet and Google the church you're gonna go to on Sunday morning. And a holy hush descended on the house of God. You need the Word of God in your life, your spirit man is starving. You have to say yes to things that are right. And I'm going to tell you where I am in the course of my life. I've made up my mind I'm going to be in church every week whether this flesh wants to get there or not. Amen. Whether my team is playing or not. There's another place where it got a little quiet in some certain parts of the congregation. Whether the fish are biting or not. Whether the sun is shining at the beach or not. Because I need the word of God in my life. Not only that, I'm going to be in the house of God whether I'm discouraged or encouraged. Whether I've gone through an ordeal recently or everything is fine. I'm going to be in God's house because I need God to speak a word to me that will cause me to live the extraordinarily blessed life. I'm going to be there whether Jerry and I are talking or not. Now, I'm really getting down to where some of us live. We can be giving each other the silent treatment just going through the house. But I'm gonna be at church on Sunday, amen. I'm gonna be there whether I'm in a financial bind or not. I'm gonna be there whether a doctor's visit went well or didn't go well. There are some things you just need to say yes to. I'm gonna give my tithe if they decrease my salary I'm going to honor God because I can't give in to the flesh because that is not exhibiting the mastery of self-control. A few things we need to say. To be effective, self-control must be exercised in two primary areas of your life. Self-control must be exercised in our emotions and in our behavior trying to just be control our behavior by focusing on what we're doing and to modify our behavior seldom works seldom works anybody that knows anything about drug addiction knows you can have a family member and they're crying with hot, bitter tears of remorse running down their face saying, I'm never going to do this again, I promise, I swear, I'm not going to. And yet, if you don't change what's going on up here, they'll walk right out of a rehab and stand on a street corner to score a hit. I know because I've had people tell me they did that very thing. Didn't even get away from the block the rehab center was in before they were standing looking to score. Amen. You see, you've got to address what's behind the behavior and that's your emotions. It doesn't work with drug addiction to try to just modify the behavior. It doesn't work with alcohol. It doesn't work with pornography. It doesn't work with affairs. It doesn't work with anything else like that either. If you've got something that's got its claws in you, you can't just say, look in the mirror and say, no, you can't. We tried that as a nation. Remember that? Just say no to drugs. How far did that get us? Amen. Didn't get us anywhere, did it? And similarly, you've got to deal with what's behind all of that, the buttons that life is pushing and the behavioral, behavioral responses to situations that cause you to end up in this situation. And that's because the reason it doesn't work is our behavior usually grows out of other factors that influence our decisions, our actions, rather than just the behavior itself. One of the most important factors that influence our behavior, say it with me, is desire. Desire. Say it, desire. desire. Desire comes in two forms. It comes in the form of hunger and it comes in the form of need. Hunger and need affect every person in this building. Hunger is different from need. We all have legitimate needs. Needs are those things you cannot live without. Hunger, on the other hand, is something you desire or won't, but you can live without it if you must. If it's not good for you, you can live without it. Amen. I'll give you an example. You need food. You can't live without it. That's why I keep saying you need to be in the house of God regularly. Amen. Your spiritual man is shriveling up on the inside. If you're not, you need food. You might be hungering, like I often do, for a good chicken and andouille sausage gumbo. But listen, you can't live on Vienna sausages and saltine crackers. Your hunger is different from your need. You can often get by by meeting your needs and saying no to your hunger. You 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 need clothing. You can literally die of exposure. You can catch a sickness going out there in the wrong kind of weather without clothing. Amen. And you can you you might desire Gucci and Armani and Prada, but I got news for you. You can get by with a pair of dockers and a t shirt. Might not want to, but you can. Amen. You desire to have new Air Jordans, but you can get by with ordinary sneakers. And you desire to have a Ferrari, but you can get by with a, with a, just a Toyota. Am I talking to anybody right now? To successfully be in charge of your, to be in charge of your life, you've got to learn to master your desires by distinguishing what is need and what is hunger needs have to be met hunger doesn't have to be met amen for example in today's world they have blurred the lines between the two i'll give you an example people say i need sex no that's a hunger how do i know that you can live without it might not want to but you can Another holy hush descended in the house of God. Amen. I'm preaching better than you're responding, but that's okay. People justify what they do on the basis of their hunger. When what you really ought to learn to do is distinguish between what is hunger and what is need. We all have desires that are physical and come from legitimate needs that can be met righteously If we practice self-control, but desires that we permit to control us inevitably cause unrighteous behavior that is always destructive and harmful to both ourselves and to those we love. If you don't learn the difference between hunger and need, I promise you, you're going to end up hurting yourself and wrecking the lives of people around you that you don't want to hurt. How do I do this, Pastor? This is why I've called you into fasting and prayer for the next two months. Until after this election is over. We need God to move. And not only that, we need God to move in this building thing. And Amen. I, I want you all to pray about the sale of another piece of property over there and, and you're giving. I'm asking you to pray. Pray about the pledge you made. Let's fast and pray and see if God will make a way. Why fast and pray? Because fasting and prayer helps us to master and control our hungers rather than being enslaved to them by focusing on our needs. We need food. But when we say no, guess what else is brought into subjection? Our hungers are. You see what I'm saying? And so you exercise self-discipline over things that you really do need to have in life and you gain control over your desires as well. Another factor that influences our behavior is our emotions. How many of you know that your behavior changes depending upon the emotional frame of mind you're in? People who are angry act differently than people who are happy. Am I right? When you are sad, you also act differently than you do, ladies and gentlemen, whenever you are full of joy. Everybody acts differently whenever they're sad. Can't help it. Amen. Same thing is true if you're afraid. You act differently if you're afraid than you do when you feel secure. I love this too about life. Trust me. When people fall in love, they act differently. Some people fall in love. Have you ever seen people get more silly in all of your life? Calvin and Hobbes has always been my favorite cartoon strip, and it hasn't been written in years, but the guy, Bill Waterman, I think must have been, I don't think he had a degree in child psychology, but he understood the psychology of children and parents like nobody I've ever met. This is one of my favorite cartoon strips, and, and I wish it was larger where I could read it a segment at a time, and you could read it, but I'll just read it to you. This is Lucy that Calvin always is fighting with and insulting. And she shouts at him, Hey, Calvin, are we near a slaughterhouse, or did you forget your deodorant? And he says, Drop dead, Susie. You're so ugly, I hear your mom puts a bag over your head before she kisses you good night." Now, Calvin is this precocious six-year-old child in the first grade. And he has a stuffed animal that's a tiger called Hobbs. And he's got this incredible, vivid imagination. And to him, that tiger is alive. So after he insults Susie back, he turns and says, it's shameless the way we flirt. (laughs) (laughs) Then he turns to his pet tiger and says, what's it like to fall in love? And Hobbes, who fancies himself to be a man of the world and knows a lot about life, tells Calvin, well, Say the object of your affection walks by. And Calvin says, yeah. And he said, first your heart falls into your stomach and splashes your innards. And all the moisture makes you sweat profusely. This condensation shorts the circuits to your brain and you get all woozy. And when your brain burns out altogether, your mouth disengages and you babble like a Cretan until she leaves. That's a pretty accurate description of what takes place. And Calvin says, that's love? And Hop says, medically speaking? <laughs> and Calvin says, heck, that happened to me once, but I figured it was the cooties, amen? <laughs> love makes people do silly things. Your emotions affect you. And your emotions, on the other hand, are affected by our thoughts. If you don't believe your thoughts have an impact on you, let a doctor tell you you have a shadow in your x-ray that looks suspicious. Or let the readers digest sweepstakes van. Pull up in front of your house and a photographer gets out and a team gets out and somebody gets out with a check that's three feet wide and five feet long. They might just be asking for directions. (laughs) But I promise you when they're approaching the door, you're saying, heart, don't fail me now, amen. Because your thoughts affect your emotions Ultimately, our emotions are affected by our thoughts. And for that reason, you could say, watch it now, that our actions stem from our thoughts. And this means that to successfully live a life of self-control, guess what you got to do? You're going to have to learn to control your thoughts and your desires. Because you have needs and desires that grow out of emotions and your emotions grow out of your thoughts. And this is where David failed his children. Because our emotions are impacted by our thoughts, it helps to realize there are two types of thoughts. And I close with this. There are conscious and subconscious thoughts. Conscious thoughts are those you are aware that you are thinking. You control them. You're the guy that controls what you're thinking consciously. Like right now, some of you are thinking, this is a great message. Others are saying mediocre. Others are saying, ah, who wants that stuff? You know, I know what congregations are thinking. Amen. Somebody else saying the roast is burning right now. (laughs) That kind of a deal. These thoughts are conscious thoughts. You can either shove them out of your mind, or what happens is they eventually will begin to position you incorrectly, and I'll show you how. They position you incorrectly because of the second types of thoughts, and that's the subconscious. Subconscious thoughts are thoughts you don't even realize are there. They are at a subliminal level. They're like a computer program running behind whatever you're doing on the computer. While you control conscious thoughts, subconscious thoughts control you. They're like autopilot, and you don't even know the program is running. I know a little bit about autopilots because I've flown so many flights with KLM. They have on several occasions invited me to the cockpit, and these guys, they get in and program the, the computers and put it on autopilot, and they're talking about kids and what they did the weekend and, and their hobbies and all of that kind of stuff. It's amazing. Autopilot is directing that plane 5,000 miles and it's being run by a program while they're talking about something else, a program beneath the surface. And you may not realize it, but much of your life is being driven by autopilot. Your subconscious thoughts are directing you, the buttons that people push, the reactions, the responses. All of that is at a subconscious level. They drop below the surface, and they're running while you're busy doing other things. And we, really, life functions that way for all of us. You say, ah, is that really going on? Yeah, it's like learning a new skill. Every day of your life, things you learn that are really challenging at first eventually work their way through the process to the point they become muscle memory. And finally, you don't even think about them anymore. It's kind of like typing. Anybody here remember when you first learned to type? How many of you can type? Let me just see. A little bit. Plunk, anyway. Okay. You first learned, you look at that keyboard like, whoa, that's Greek or something, Russian. I don't know what that is. And so you're there, and the teacher gives you this assignment, and you type. And I don't know if they still do this, but, um, you know, you all remember that old statement, all Good countrymen will come to whatever it was. A to their. They still teach that. And you're out there, oh, where's the A? Oh, here it is. Punk. L. I know you're here somewhere. Come on, L. Punk. Punk. Where's the space? Oh, there it is. Got it right on the thing. Space. Hit that. And now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their countrymen. That's what it is. And so what you're doing. You're, 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 you're taking five minutes to type five words. But after you've done it for a while, you just sit back. Bring me some coffee. Say, no, not make that Coke Zero. Got any donuts back here? Amen. And you're flying over that keyboard. You know what I'm talking about? It has now become submerged. Your subconscious thoughts are like that. They run your life. What starts out as a conscious thought gets submerged, and I'm done. And so your state of happiness or depression, your degree of success or failure, your measure of contentment or frustration are all the result of your subconscious thoughts. It's what the Bible called your heart. And here's an important key to your future happiness, and I'm finished. Success, contentment, whether it's in your marriage, your finances, your business, all of these things right now, your ministry, your walk with God, all of these things, here is what is the key that will unlock your future for you. The thoughts you are thinking right now are on their way to becoming the subconscious thoughts that will govern your life and become the autopilot that guides you tomorrow. Whatever you're allowing yourself to think is on its way to becoming the program that's going to be buried and run your life tomorrow. This is why I love the Word of God. It is so incredibly amazing. You get saved. And you know what God does right away? Begins to, if you get the Word, which is why I keep telling you, you need the Word. You can't get too much Word. Do you hear? Amen. I don't care how spiritual you are or think you are. You need to be in the house of God. You need to hear preaching. You need to... I I watch it on TBN. Well, I really feel for you. I'm serious. You think you're getting everything you need? No, you're not. Uh uh-uh. uh. Listen. The Word of God begins to reprogram you. It gives you the opportunity to flush out all the junk. And as you study the Word, it replaces the principles of this fallen world that you have been programmed with that are operating your life on autopilot right now. It reprograms those principles that always lead to loss and failure and that have negatively affected you your entire life. It replaces them with the principles of the kingdom of God, which always produce success and achievement and lead you to the extraordinarily blessed life and the reason some believers never get there is they don't let this get inside they've thought the same way for so long and they say stuff like well that's just the way I am really that's just that's just me That's just it. You're not supposed to be just you anymore. You're supposed to be a child of God, filled with the spirit sent into the world to model what Christ will do in your life when you surrender your life to him. I need somebody to shout hallelujah.